Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of the Pink Bike Podcast. Today, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane, looking back at the inventions that changed mountain biking for the better. Remember adjusting cantilever brake pads? How about stopping the top of a hill to lower your seat? Or maybe the noise of a chain smacking against a derailleur cage every time you went downhill? I'm Mike Kazmer, and joining me are James Smurthwaite. Hey, James. Hey, Mike. Do you remember adjusting cantilever brake pads? I that was well before my time. I, to be honest, came in about the same time as dropper posts, so I think I avoided the worst of it. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good time to enter the sport. Let's see, we also have Sarah Moore. And Sarah, I don't think you had cantilever brakes either. How about dropper posts? Did you have to ride without a dropper post for a while? Yeah, I had yeah rim rim brakes and no dropper post. But I also rode cross country. So did I you mean, have a front? Did you have a front trailer? Oh yeah. I know. I was thinking about that. I had so many gears. Like, <laughs> yeah, three chain rings up front. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I had three chain rings up front, and I only needed eight gears in the back. Like, <laughs> then you have to like worry about cross chaining and make sure you're always in the right gear. So, yeah, yeah that was a big days. deal. I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had like I can never adjust the them too. So difficult to adjust your front derailleur. They're very hard to adjust. I'm so glad they're gone. Mm-hmm. Hey, Brian, you probably had all the things too. You had yeah. cantilever brakes. I've I've had all, most of the things. I came in. Yeah, I had a bunch of bikes without without discs. Um, I feel like I'm I'm gonna sound like the turbo curmudgeon and say, I do think that kids these days should be forced at some point to ride a 1998 hardtail. Eh, they could. I don't like think just they need once, to be just to, but once just, it's good to experience it. Just yeah. just before they complain that bikes are three thousand dollars. Yeah, that was like 90, you, I started ninety four. Mm-hmm. My hardtail was even worse than the 98 one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was looking back at some of these old New World Disorder videos and I was like, I kind of want to just try one. Like I've never, I never rode any of those bikes, you know? So like I watched those videos and I'm like, okay, it's impressive. But like the stuff now is way more impressive. But if I'd ridden one of those bikes. It's extra impressive. Yeah. Ex- yeah. It's extra impressive. So Sarah, I, feel like- I, I feel like it would be a good use of pink bike funds to buy you an RM7. Yes, I'll yeah. support that. I'll Let's chip in. I'll buy you an RM7. <laughs> With like, I want to ride it too because we'll ride the same size now because I used to ride a medium RM7 back in the day. So oh, we'll perfect. get a medium. And it'll, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we it'll need it. Everybody. We're gonna, we're gonna yeah, get, we should have like the vintage pink bike collection. Yeah, yeah. We'll get we'll get a, a another sponsor for next week's episode and that's where the money's going to go. Perfect. We'll decorate our new office. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to the news, I also have to announce a very special guest is going to be joining us later. We're going to have Richard Cunningham, RC, come in for the discussion about mountain bike inventions because I'm pretty sure he invented mountain biking. So we're going to have him come on and talk about all of that in a bit. But before we do that, James, let's you take it away with the news. Thanks, Mike. Um, We are equal parts happy and sad uh, to announce the return of Pond Beaver. Sad because we're all vitamin D deprived from living in northern climates. It means we can't go out to California and hang out in the sunshine. But happy because we're still able to bring you all the cool new products that we'd normally see at Sea Otter. As per last year, you can expect new kit, some randoms, and of course, pets of Pond Beaver once again. Kaz, What's in the pipeline that people can get excited about? Is there anything you can tell us about yet? Yeah, there's a few things. Uh, there's one, the biggest story will more than likely be the new Trek session. We've kind of seen the spy shots floating around or pseudo spy shots, whatever you'd like to call them. Um, but yeah, the session's back, but it has a high pivot or we'll call it medium high pivot suspension design, aluminum frame, updated geometry. So that's going to be kind of a big story. By the time this podcast airs, you'll be able to read all about that. We've also got all kinds of 
say a lot of little gadgets coming on, um, little tools and parts and things. So that's kind of all these, the fun little, the randoms articles that you get from Pond Beaver. You get to read about those. There's and a lot then, of weirder stuff this year. It, it feels, I think the one thing I really miss from not going to trade shows is, you know, we know all the main, we know all the main manufacturers. So we talk to them and we see the things that are coming out. So that kind of stuff is normal, but we miss we miss seeing weird inventors with their weird contraptions walking around trade shows forlornly asking people to look at them. And this year, there there are actually quite a few strange little things, interesting technologies and stuff coming out. So, yeah, yeah. some weird stuff. I'm, I'm yeah. excited about that stuff. Exactly. So, yeah, we'll be tracking down all the little weird things and interesting things. And there are some other bigger items but i don't know if they'll actually come out during pond beaver because all the embargo dates just keep changing pretty much daily it seems because of delays and things so i think we're gonna get them squeaked in at the end yeah we'll see but it'll be good lots of lots of tech content over the next couple weeks so stay tuned for that um well from the latest greatest stuff to a load of fake stuff um my least favorite day of the year happened uh last week that was april fools i actually took the day off to avoid it because it just does my head in (laughs) um (laughs) I oh it costs sixty nine dollars does it brilliant yeah um, I did actually enjoy it's Brian's it. favorite day yeah <laughs> <laughs> Brian loves it yeah <laughs> uh, I did actually enjoy the pink bike NSMB troll off thing though um, fair play to Cam and, and the rest of the the editors there for having some fun with it and um, playing along with that um, there is one I've been a bit scared to ask about in case it got me but is that pivot grim donut thing real what do you think. I think it. I think they they might make some, but I don't think they're going to race on them. <laughs> uh, so, just for people who don't know, we announced last week on April Fools that Pivot will be producing version two of the Grim Donut. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and say that about seventy percent of the things I wrote in there is a, is true, and you'll we'll just have to wait and see which seventy percent. Yeah, I like keep it. Keep, yeah. keep the uh, the suspense going a little <laughs> longer, a couple more months. <laughs> I so badly want it to be true. I so badly <laughs> want it to be true. <laughs> yeah, I liked that Miranda and Remy and Jesse actually did come out with a YouTube channel. It was like, this is a joke. Don't. Oh wait, subscribe. Oh, I don't know. Should I subscribe? But it was actually, it was actually true. So I think yeah, it would have been funnier if they did. My head in. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm glad Oprah fools over. But there were some good is, ones this year. Yeah. Is there? Is there? I haven't seen the newest the one that they put out since is it just a real regular youtube or are they Mm. keeping up the joke no it's a real regular youtube oh yeah yeah oh miranda was super funny in the april fools one so yeah i would have liked to see them just continue the joke and beat it to death the way that we do (laughs) 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 week after week is april fools (laughs) like i said ryan loves april fools joke after joke (laughs) (laughs) um Back to more kind of serious stuff. Um, Shimano wireless shifting seems to be getting closer thanks to a patent we saw this week. So along with kind of the expected wireless shifting and dropper post, the patent also includes details about the ability to control the bike suspension, some sort of wireless electronic uh, lockout going on, uh, which is probably the main difference from SRAM's system. There's, you know, kind of not very much information to go on here. The the painting was pretty thin on details. Um, so kind of push button, change gear, that kind of seems to be the best summary we can give. So instead, let's let's talk a bit broader. Kaz, what would this need to do to equal or supersede SRAM's offerings? Yeah, I mean, to make it have a 
to be like a compelling option against SRAM, they, they could either make it lighter, which, you know, SRAM stuff's not that light compared to the regular, um, you know, cable and housing versions. They could, I mean, battery life could be something in there, although SRAM's battery life's already really impressive. Um, and, you know, taking the Shimano, their little features and having it on this drivetrain, you know, adjustable clutch, those type of things could set it apart. I feel like it doesn't, I feel it just needs to get, be about as good as SRAM in terms of the wireless, the wireless aspects, the wireless and electronic aspects. If oh, it yeah, retains, still buy it. Well, it, it just needs to be the same. Like there's, SRAM has done a great job with Axis. I don't think it needs any sort of like dramatic whatever. If you can get the Shimano, you know, a, a lot of people prefer Shimano shifting and the shifting under power of Shimano and people have Shimano systems, all those things. Like as long as it's in the ballpark, I think it, it'll do really well. Yeah, there's nothing like there's nothing about access that has like a big target. Say, oh, exactly. somebody could just make this better because it is pretty good. But it's really if they good. wanted to come out and, ha- and be able to say, hey, it's lighter or mm-hmm. like I'm assuming those would be things since they've had this. Yeah. They have this time where they already know how access works and everything. They would try to surpass it in some way, I'd imagine, just at least so they could have that as a, a bullet point. But I mean, they basically have to get it to market. So we'll see when that happens. Is that you know, wireless suspension um, lockout? Is that? of any interest or do you not think that's that's something that will have a great deal of use to me personally it's not a much interest but i do know lots of riders or you know fair number of riders are interested in that type of thing and you know maybe that they can integrate it for like the xc bikes mm-hmm. you know xc riders have already been skeptical of even using a dropper post at all but if somehow that changed their suspension maybe there's something in there uh, there's I, applications that make sense i think i've said that on the podcast before but that having your suspension tied to your dropper post to me makes so much sense like it's how how rowdy your terrain is is pretty much directly correlated to like whatever you're riding how open you want your suspension to be is directly correlated to how high your high your post is so yeah if, we, if you could use that information in an electronic system it'd be really cool yeah i know years ago rc and i were chatting and we like i thought in my head i came up with this idea but i think lots of people had to come up with it and i'm pretty sure he drew it up like we had a whole cable system that was going to do the thing and I don't know. I think he drew it on MS Paint, so I need to have my maybe I can file a patent lawsuit when this comes out. <laughs> I invented this, <laughs> but no, it'd be cool to see what they do with all the, you know, I, with the patent. They're just trying to cover all the bases and kind of give themselves room to develop in those areas and have it slightly protected. But we'll see how it turns out. Do you think they'll struggle to match SRAM on price now that GX Eagle is in the wild? That's a tricky one. I'd say initially, kind of like what we saw with uh, you know the debut of XTR twelve speed. You know, SRAM is a couple steps ahead. It usually just takes some time. But then you know, to be fair to Shimano, they came, they released XT and then SLX and Dior relatively quickly after mm-hmm. um, XTR twelve speed hit. So you know, they know what they have to do. So we'll just kind of see if they can get everything going. And what's the like currently? You can get GX Axis for the same price as you can get. It's actually slightly more expensive than XTR. Current mechanical so. XTR. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it's is. Like six hundred dollars. Six hundred dollars versus like four fifty or something for a mm-hmm. derailleur chain. And so I mean, where do we think what's the premium on GX axis versus GX mechanical? Uh like five hundred dollars. No, uh, four like four hundred something dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've got quite a bit of room to play with. Like mm-hmm. if you take XTR and add four hundred dollars to it, that's still below XX1 axis. 
Yeah, I'm bad at math, so yeah. but either yeah. way, we'll see where they come Where's out. I'm sure you know. We didn't prepare yeah. a spreadsheet yeah. for the podcast, guys. Yeah. <laughs> they all the rest of it. but yeah, I think that uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see exactly how they come up with it, and you know, even just the, like the shifter design. Obviously, the patent doesn't cover that, so you know, there's so much room. I think with wireless electronic shifters, like they don't have to look like shifters; they could just mm-hmm. be little buttons or little tiny things. So I think there's a lot of room in that area for someone clever to come up with a design that's cool. Um, when do you think we'll see this um, either on races bikes or, or released? I don't know. Um, not tomorrow. There's no review coming. I don't think it's that soon, but I'm not sure. I don't have any uh, clear answer on that one. Let's put put some predictions out there. I think it's, not, it's not January 1st. We can wait. Yeah, next year. I predict next summer. So I think the other 22 will mm-hmm. we'll see racers. Let's, yeah, that's what I or maybe. Yeah. Maybe we'll see like a spy shot before that, but um, I don't think it's it's not coming tomorrow as far as I can tell. Um, lastly, um, G. Atherton, clearly he's been having some rampage withdrawals as he's been back out filming another huge line. Last time it was Ridge Line, this time it was Slate Line as he dug a super steep track at a local quarry. It ended with an impressive 81-foot gap and the kind of terrain he's doing it on with that constantly shifting slate underneath his wheels um makes it pretty terrifying i think um what did you guys think yeah it looked frightening i don't, would not like to ride down that slate stuff at least more than i wouldn't want to do it more than once and then hitting that gap the gap was super impressive the rest of it i don't know it was, it was cool but not like not mind-blowing i think it just looked frightening more than anything to me yeah. i i kind of feel like it was even scarier than it looked on film like i bet it was a whole bunch steeper and scarier i like the free ride g's back me too. Yeah, I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's it's really impressive because like that is my least favorite type of train to ride is like when it's like loose wa- rocks and the trails just like moving with you and it's like so hard to feel in control unless you go really fast like G does. But it's funny, like hard line and like this line, it's like, you know, it's really hard when even G's like looks like it's not the easiest thing <laughs> yeah, like he's on the brakes <laughs> yeah and then like his like relief at the end after hitting that gap but i have to say the ridge line was a lot more i think like aesthetically like beautiful to watch and it was like you know i, I wanted to see more gaps in in the slate <laughs> like before he got to the last one which is really impressive but you know maybe he could have done two 40 foot gaps would have been just no I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no I, i'm okay with just putting the banger at the end yeah i felt I felt a little bit, Sarah, you might relate to when I had my crash a few years ago. The yes. Terrain was, the terrain was kind of similar. <laughs> Maybe that's and why I had, I'm like yeah, so nervous about. Like yeah. when I, where I crashed, it was a similar like sort of talus fieldy kind of look. And yeah. the start of that G video, I was a little uncomfortable. And then <laughs> just it's on watching the cliff. It's like, yeah. 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 Get some PTSD. A little yeah. bit. A little <laughs> yeah. bit. Also, yeah. apparently, like, James, you did the bike check. Did he really use the same set of tires for that entire shoot? I mean, that's what he said. Um, My, I mean, it was sponsored by Continental, and that's impressive, if that's the case. That was definitely yeah. one of my thoughts. It was like, wow, those look like really sharp rocks, and he's just like throwing his tires into them, you know? I was like, ooh. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, that's impressive. I, I heard uh, back when, oh, what's the New World uh, New World Disorder? Oh, the one with Brandon at Retallic, Brandon Semenuk at Retallic. He rides from the peak of Retallic and rides three different bikes all the way through. Somebody will know which New World Disorder that is. Anyways, 
Uh, I heard that on that shoot, he went through, and it, it's similar looking sort of like horrible shale at the top. I heard he went through just insane amounts of tires. So Tires are so much better now, right? Is that one of oh, the best mountain bike conventions? Oh, look at that. Oh, that's oh, more could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into a couple of questions. Uh, we don't have a ton today. So anyone that's listening, if you do have questions for us, make sure you leave them in the comments and we'll try to get to them because we always like trying to answer a few interesting questions. Uh, this first one comes from RTI Edge. He says, when is the new value bike test, value bike field test going to drop? Really looking forward to it. Uh, be- Soon? believe it's on Monday the 19th, but don't. That's the date I had in my mind yeah. April, yeah. April 19th as well. So if we both had got the same date, then that's probably what it is. Yeah. Jason sent through uh, some of the previews. So we've, we've got some lined up for those dates. So yeah. yeah. So it's coming. It's in the works. All the testing has been done at this point. Now it's, you know, they're packaging up ready for everybody to watch. So stay tuned. But yeah, April, April 19th, we'll put that as a soft, a soft date target for it. <laughs> Jason still has to do the huck to flat. We, we did the efficiency test and possible climb. We just got the phantom camera with the huck to flat to, oh, yeah. to go. Oh, and we can throw some other people under the bus for why it's taking so long. The phantom camera was broken. It's not our there fault. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cause we can't watch any of the videos until the huck to flat. No, that's important. It's <laughs> super important. Yeah. Well, this last one, I'll let you read this one, Brian, cause it looks like uh, it's about me for you. Oh yeah. Something like that. Oh yeah, it's on it's on the the Pond Beaver launch article where there's a photo of you, probably on a Zoom call, and the Chaka Ping says, "Am I pronouncing that right?" Yeah. Uh, hope that picture of Kaz was taken just as he'd put the finishing touches on the EXT fork review and was taking a moment to enjoy a feeling of quiet satisfaction for a job well done. I might be wrong, but that's what it looks like to me, anyways. <laughs> I hope that you never finish that review because that means I don't have to send that fork back. <laughs> well, I mean, think those things go together. I can't finish the review until you send the fork back. So I think we're good. <laughs> Is that true? Is that true? I will, I will send it back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there are other things we are going to have someone pull it apart up there in Squamish yeah. and look in the inside and stuff. So yeah. We're, ben, uh, ben is, I think we're, the plan is to go up to, to Ben, uh, next week, early next week. That'd be good. So it's being worked on. Should we tell people where the photo actually was? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a field it was pre Zoom. <laughs> yeah. I know. Is that from Field Test three years ago? Yeah. In Pemberton? Yeah. It's yeah. an, old, an old picture. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, uh, yeah. That wraps up the questions. Now we're going to bring in our special guest. Richard Cunningham's going to join us and we'll get into talking about all the inventions that changed mountain biking for the better. But first, we should probably start by talking about the battle days. RC, why don't you set the stage? How downright dangerous were those early mountain bikes? Well, I've got a few of them because I made them and they're in my attic and I ride them every once in a while. And when I come back, pretty much it's like, wow, how did we ever go downhill on those bikes? So (laughs) everything probably is better now and and for the good of it. I'd be curious if anything actually is worse. We get through this podcast and be like, oh, you know what? Whatever. Something was better. Yeah. Coaster brakes were the future and we didn't realize it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, there's one thing that was better, and maybe maybe modern bikes are, are better even still, but I noticed that there's some rock gardens, like the long stream beds and stuff, that 
those old bikes actually rolled through. Because, you know, I've been riding for, what, since the beginning of the mountain bike. So I've, I've gone through the same trails for, what, 35 years. 1920, yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the high wheelers. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some rock gardens that I still get caught up in with full suspension that with completely rigid bikes made out of steel that were all flexible with those skinny tires that I would roll through every time, no problem. Never took a dab. So there might be something good, but I'd trade it all. Think- I think the only thing that's worse now than 20 years ago is me. <laughs> but now you have bikes that are better, so they help yeah, you not feel like you're worse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so my friend, yeah. Jo- my friend Jody, uh, Jody Weisel, he has this saying that he, that he repeats all the time, and it's that when you get new technology like a faster motorcycle or a dual suspension bike, we all go faster for about six months and then we roll back to just about where our abilities were when we started and we just use that technology to make it easier for us to ride the dirt so we should really spend the winters training on the on your you know 1995 rocky mountain fusion and then and then when it comes to race day break up the new tech (laughs) that could be it but uh you know, that whole old adage of uh, starting on a hardtail and learning everything with flat pedals and all that stuff, I think is pretty much BS because, you know, it'd be like going to a Supercross track and riding an old Norton matchless until you could dial it all in, you know, just eight and a half and start on today's technology and then get better than everybody did in the past. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm with you on that one. I agree. I, I never have been one to think that you have to have to suffer before you can start enjoying the sport because it's pretty good right now. There's no need to make it make, go back to the old days, but we should start with some of the things that really have changed the sport to where we are now, I guess. I mean, we'll talk about geometry a little bit, but I think this will be the focus will be kind of more on the products or the components yeah. that have really changed it. Ge- geometry is its own whole 10, 10 podcast series. Um, and it's obviously of all of these things, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's made the biggest difference just geometry over technology in general i'm not with you on that one because i'll take my disc brakes and dropper posts and all that with a slightly shittier geometry because i've ridden some things on bikes that today would be considered old-fashioned and it was just fine mm-hmm. so oh yeah but, no no yeah i like the dropper there's a, post there's a there's a diminishing returns at some point for sure but yeah. rc did you have a height ride ever yes i did but so shut your eyes everybody and let's go <laughs> back into the wayback machine because a lot of the stuff that completely changed mountain biking, you just, most of the people that are riding bikes now just take for granted. So let's shut your eyes, exhale, inhale, and let's go back to Shimano index shifting. Now imagine you have steam levers on your bike. They don't really do anything except move stuff around. And you come up to a hill and there's a bunch of rocks and stuff and it's all technical. And you have to move these levers just right. So your front and rear derailleur, remember there was front derailleurs back there, had to figure out where are the first three chain rings and five gears in the back you're going to go before you hit the hill. And then you have to adjust them so they're not jumping around on the chain and everything like that. And then start pedaling up the hill. And if you pick the wrong gear, you got to do all that shit back. You got to go back and kind of pick another one and move those levers. That's a lot of brain work just to shift a transmission. So when Shimano index shifting came out, SIS index shifting, they called it, 
And I think that's super index shifting or something like that. It's actually Shimano integrated shifting. Because Shimano, in order to do that, they had to throw away the, the idea that you could put anybody's rear cogs, anybody's front cogs, anybody's derailleur on your bike, and it would all work. Because as long as your brain was doing all that, it was fine. But if you wanted it to click and shift, everything had to be spaced perfectly. So when Shimano in, did their SIS index shifting, and it actually worked, everybody should have been applauding, like, yay, finally I can just click mm -hmm. and the gears go right. But instead, all these old curmudgeons, by the way, which I have become, told Shimano that they were absolute creeps trying to take over the world by making their system the only one that worked with their system. And today, we, we know that's probably a good idea. But back then, they were screaming all the magazines. Wait, are you telling me that back in, you know, the 1920s or whenever this was, that people were already complaining about standards? Oh, my God. It was the worst thing in the world. It was like... It was worse than the wheel wars of, of the of 2015. <laughs> but the one thing that changed the world was that you could just go flying into a situation without having to worry about it, push these little thumb levers. By the way, they're on the top. Of the, there was no trigger shifters. Push the thumb levers and it would go tit, 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 and everything would go in the right spot. And it was just magic. That one thing transformed the mountain biking. Yeah, I had... I had friction shifters, and then I remember the switch to, to index. Kaz, did you ever have pre-index? Uh, no, I think mean, I've ridden bikes. I've had, like, townies, but I never have had a mountain bike with thumb shifters. My, everything I started with, I think I had STXRC was on my mm -hmm. first bike, so that was, you know, trigger shifters. But, um, but yeah, I can appreciate the difference. I've definitely had, like, I've had old Schwinn's that have the, uh, like, what do you call them, steam levers RC? I remember I had a Schwinn <laughs> RC that had those. And yeah, trying to imagine riding that off-road would be tricky. Though. Horrifying. They I once called... knocked my teeth out. I once knocked my teeth out on a on an old 10-speed road bike because I could. there was something going on with the friction shifter and I and I was going like one kilometer an hour. And I, I looked down, it was early in the morning, and uh, just like slowly rolled into the back of a parked van and knocked my two front teeth out. <laughs> those are fake. <laughs> well, it mine, was really embarrassing might have been fixed four times they were like like rabbit teeth when i started out and now they're the smallest ones in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> just bring yeah. a bit extra yeah <laughs> yeah shift <laughs> moving on from the shifting now we got shifting's pretty good even now we're, we're, we're spoiled now people can have wireless electronic shifting but what about headsets like the threadless headset that's something oh, you don't yeah. even think about these days but I mean, riding off-road with a quill stem just sounds horrifying. <laughs> did your first bikes have those, RC? Did you did the Mantis have a quill stem, or were you threadless? No, no. The thread, threaded headsets were like an absolute abomination because, well, it was worse because we had threaded headsets, and they were one inch. So they were flexed. And when they flexed, the the one side of the headset got really tight and the other side of the headset got really loose. So everybody thought that they were over-tightening their headsets or whatever was ruining, they would burn out. All you get pits in your headsets in about, gosh, six months. I mean, literally over one or two headsets a year, but really it was just the flexing. And it, when that happened, I mean, it was just horrible. You had to adjust them. And when we switched to like aluminum frames, there was this odd thing that happened. If you went into a cold climate, the aluminum head tube would shrink faster than the steel steerer in the fork. And they'd get loose at the top of the mountains where it was freezing. And when you got back to the desert, they'd be all perfect again. So it was 
two things that that change headsets. One was um, Gary Fisher's push to go with larger diameter uh, head tubes. I mean, steerer tubes, so they wouldn't flex. And he went way big, I think inch and a quarter or something like that. But it was a great idea, and Gary Fisher actually pushed it. He gets the credit. And then it was Tioga's decision to go to the midsize inch and an eighth uh, steer that that made it actually a reality for the industry. And threadless, we can say Cane Creek, because the threadless headset, first, not making it flex, worked made work wonders. That kind of solved that problem. But it was Cane Creek, that threadless collet that absolutely made the headset problem go away. And it was huge. It was a huge issue. And threadless, inch and an eighth, boom, it was all gone. You know, one downside, though, of the threadless headset is that you could no longer run that original Gervin flex stem. Oh, gosh. I'm so sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> the sacrifices we've made for technology. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, what is it? The The entire industry focused on for a little while, like starting with uh, Brian Skinner, with uh, rear suspension, and we forgot front suspension. And it was like totally mm-hmm. wrong. We got it backwards. It was like, you know, our ass can take a lot of pounding. The the popularity of road so, racing can, can pretty much, pretty much uh, could could uh, witness that. But the front suspension, it was Rock Shocks. You know, mm-hmm. Paul Turner when he made the Rock Shocks, that was the suspension revolution because it didn't matter whether you're riding a hardtail when you jump up and down on the pedals. It the front for, the fork takes the the load. So was, I think the whole flex stem thing kind of like is being reinvented for gravel bikes and it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if it failed once, it's going to fail again, right? The fact that your handlebars are moving different than your bike, the lesson hasn't been learned. I feel like like it makes more sense for gravel bikes than mountain bikes though. Like we're, gravel bikes are, the, the terrain is more static. It's more of a, like a vibration that they're trying to deal with than actual terrain. Uh, I I'm not talking about the gravel bikes. I'm not yeah. talking about the gravel bikes that people are trying to just ride like mountain bikes. And that's where it like aptly actual, leads yeah. to. Yeah. Correct. It's gravel, like cool. gravel you've in, wow. You've invented a 1998 mountain bike. Great job with drop bars. Absolutely. Like, that's I mean, not, the mountain bikes are just desperately, I mean, gravel bikes are desperately trying not to be 29ers 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But the evolution, <laughs> the evolution path has already been made. So if you're going to, if you're going to turn a, a monkey into a man, it's going to happen no matter whether you call it a gravel bike yeah. or a 29er. Yeah. Do you, going back to suspension, you put most of that credit on Paul Turner in early Rock Shocks, hey? Absolutely. Because he put the whole package any, together. Were there any other? I remember those original Rock Shocks, but would you put any other? Like, who else has made some giant leaps forward? Well, in suspension. Oh, the the giant leaps. Well, the giant leap for mountain biking was suspension forks, and you can split that between Manitou and and Rock Shocks because both of those came out about the same time. But Rock Shocks beat them to the punch, and that was it. But as far as suspension goes, um, there was a number of you know of flexible frames and all that stuff that came out. But I think just like my my uh, my joke about about gravel people trying to desperately not to be twenty niners, everybody's idea about flexible this and pivotless that and 
it was just trying not to be a motorcycle. And once we realized that if you put a shock on there and pivots and stuff and made it work, the decision was made and, and the, the rest was history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was such a, I remember, I mean, because I started in the mid 90s, basically. And even at that time, I remember there was such a, a fear of the weight of full suspension or the fear of you know, the weight of, you know, disc brakes, all those things. It, it was such a weight, we need time. We'd be like, oh no, we can't have full suspension. It'll be too heavy to ride. But then obviously that went away and people like, oh, this is way better to ride. But, I just remember the early, I remember the first time I saw a full suspension bike, I was racing BMX and somebody had their full suspension mountain bike. I wish I could remember what it was at the BMX track. And I remember being like, oh shit, that thing is so cool. Um, and a bunch of people were like, I mean, he's just, it's going to be so slow. He's got no power because he's going to, it's all the power is going to go into the suspension. And I mean, obviously that is true for BM, you know, you're not going to rock up to a BMX track on a, on a full suspension mountain bike and do well, but it was still the fear of, you know, I think that's why we had every marketing campaign of every suspension system since 1993 has been like zero compromises <laughs> it had perfect pedaling all the has all your power perfect braking all the things you know it's just like that fear has been so pervasive stealing your energy well it does it steals your energy steals when it. you're when you're absolutely fresh and fit but the dream of, i mean the the benefit of suspension is when you get tired your bicycle still is working so you, if you take the whole hardtail, no suspension thing to the limit, if you're like six foot six and you've got arms and legs that, that, can, that can take up eight inches or 10 inches of suspension, while you're hot, while your mind's working and your body's great, you can outdo any suspension system because your brain is leveling everything while you go and you have like a automatic sensors everywhere. But once you get tired, you're just flailing down the mountain. And if you look at the old school mountain bike racing, you can see the first lap, everybody's hot. The last lap, they're falling off the handlebars. They're going off into the bushes. It's just, it's like, okay, <laughs> there's the break point. Joke's on you. I'm flailing around from day one. <laughs> <laughs> so back in the old days, what's the next thing after suspension that... Mm. that uh, that changed the world. And I think it's a toss up between two, but I'm going to go with hydraulic disc brakes because uh, clip in pedals, Shimano SBD pedals are still being argued on pink bike. <laughs> but but well, those two inventions came about, came out about, about the same time. And, and I'm going to give Hayes the nod for the hydraulic disc brakes because mm -hmm. Hayes was the first disc brake company to put it all together. I mean, there was like Shimano came out with their, twin piston super kit but it twin, never do you remember worked. the shimano twin disc no it had the double disc there was a, a shimano prototype system that had two discs sandwiched together no i never saw that yeah, and then and canada came out with theirs it was like a fixed piston on one side and it pulled from there mm -hmm. i remember those ones mm -hmm. yeah. but yeah, yeah when haze came out those are the ones those purple haze per well even before the purple haze they had the best system, but then Purple Haze was like... Yeah, that turned into... Like, yeah, yeah. Purple Haze were like 2,000-ish era. So there were... Yeah. But it took it, it took one person or one company to put it all together. You know, Shimano had it, but Shimano's so conservative, they got it once, but they got it wrong and they kind of stepped back. And it was Haze that came out with the right price, durable enough so that you could crash on it. And it, it worked well enough so that it only squeaked here and then. And that was it. That launched the, the the disc brake. And after that, there was 
two things that drove it. One is, unlike road bikes, in order to take off a wheel on a mountain bike, you had to disassemble the brakes. So when you put the wheel back on, if the user forgot to assemble the brakes, that was a huge legal thing that you couldn't really take to court. I mean, if you look at the typical jury in a product liability case, they're not your Mm -hmm. peers. They're people that didn't win the I don't want to go to court lottery. And they're all shapes and sizes. And if you said, hey, I think my client, I mean, I think I think my uh, my customer is responsible for knowing how brake works. And so that accident is is his or her responsibility. You would lose immediately. So mm-hmm. the disc brakes was powered by two things. One is you could put the wheels on, the brakes always worked. And the other one is they work better than anything that happened before. And you can pretty much put that decision in both hands and it weighs about the same. I just, when you watch like... N- old free ride videos like North Shore Extreme 1, 2, whatever. And you're like, oh, wow, that was pretty rowdy for the time. And then you're like, oh, oh, he's he's got rim brakes. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, remember the brake boosters? Like, we all had V-brakes, but then you bought the, the brake booster to help everything stiffen up a bit, a little bit, so the flex wouldn't... Oh, it was it. horrible. Yeah. The the rim brakes would get worse as they heated up. So the first time I raced the, the Mammoth Kamikaze... Um, I didn't pre-ride it. I thought, you know, it's a downhill. It's a le- it's like, what, five miles or something like that. But I've ridden down mountains all my life. So I'm just going to go up there and line up and see what happens. Well, it was like, it was rough because there's no suspension. And it was faster than snot. I mean, you're going in a 54, 13, spun out at, at the very beginning at 11,000 feet. So you're already in oxygen debt before you hit the first couple of corners. And then you start going, your your two fingers wear out. So you grab the bar with your your braking fingers and you use your little finger and outside finger until they die. And then you use your whole hand and pretty soon your whole hand is tired and it's starting to bounce off the handlebars because you have arm pump. And literally there's films, if you watch the old ones of riders just coming off the handlebars because their hands won't grip anymore and just f- driving off without any hands on their handlebars into the weeds somewhere. <laughs> So that's scary. how bad rim brakes were. Yeah. And that's on a gravel road, basically. A 5313 spun out on a gravel road is like my nightmare ride. <laughs> I do I do think that parallel push was really cool. It was really satisfying. If you remember the, yeah. the Shimano invention where they had like a parallelogram mm-hmm. so that your, your brake pads would hit flush against your rim brake. I don't think they actually did anything, but yeah. they made them so squeal. Cool. Remember yeah. how loud those ones, those XT, XTR from that era, those brakes were so loud. But you had V-brakes, so you were excited. But then, yeah, yeah, luckily, exactly. the V-brake era was short. I'm glad V-brakes were invented because at least they show up on cheaper kids' bikes now and stuff. And they they do work way better than cantilever brakes. But, yeah, disc brakes are huge. I wouldn't trade mine for and, anything. And they made a huge – it was a huge leap forward for the industry. Whereas, I agree with you, RC, like the – SPD was an important invention uh, that they sort of got right over time. Uh, but it's, you know, there's merits for or not with clipless pedals. I don't think, I think the industry would have, the mountain bike would have continued to progress with or without clipless pedals. But I think braking was something that just like, yep, yeah, needed to be addressed. Yeah. And then you don't have to put brake bosses on the frame, on the seat stays. You can put it all back by the rear axle. You give you, opens up some more frame design things too, rather than trying to make sure that you can actually mount brakes in one spot. Do, do you remember trying to deal with 
potentially new wheel sizes with rim brakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just, yeah. There were so many things wrong with it, but you know, back to the, to, to the V brake. I, I should be clear. When I say dealing with, with brake, different wheel sizes with rim brakes, I don't mean putting a 29er on. I mean, putting a 24 inch wheel on. <laughs> <laughs> or just oh, a different width. Tire. What's happening? <laughs> just a different width rim. I mean, you put a different width rim on and, and thus everything, the spacing changes and stuff. But to a shout out to uh, something I just learned. Uh, it was uh, Charlie Cunningham that that invented the V-brake, the cam, the power cam brake. And he invented it for all the good reasons. I mean, Charlie was was just one of those people that was so far into the future that he didn't nobody understood him like Jimmy Page's electric guitar. Anyway, um, but it was Scott Nicole of Ibis that that was the test pilot. So he has Scott Nicole has has pre WTB uh, uh, power cam brakes, the ones that Charlie Cunningham built in his shop. And if you saw his shop, it's like it looks like a blacksmith shop that somebody pulled from outer space. It's just this piles of everything. He has a hacksaw with he has six or seven hacksaws up there with different blades on them because he didn't use machining to build his frames. He just clipped them out with aircraft snips and hacked them off with it. He was just an amazing guy with old school and new new school at the same time. But yeah, shout out to to um Charlie Cunningham and his and his test mule for uh, solving the cantilever brake problems and then giving us a little bit of braking power until disc brakes came out. Thanks, Charlie. Also, I think I'm just reading up on Charlie now. It says he also co-designed the ground control tire. Oh, yeah. That wow. was a good tire. That was a good tire. I sold a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. We could talk about tires, too. That's another thing that not quite as groundbreaking as some of the other ones, but tubeless tires have been a pretty... Mm -hmm. Now that they're pretty widespread, there's still room for improvement, but I don't miss tubes at all, ever. So, I I'd that, agree that that's, I would disagree that that's a small deal. I think, I think tubeless tires were, are one of the top five inventions of all time with mountain bikes, maybe the top three. And I'll go back to the beginning of the mountain bike and its popularity was based on the fact that you could hang your mountain bike in the garage and five weeks later, there would still be enough air in it to ride it. And I think the, there's the the power the 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 billions of mountain bikes that were sold before front suspension. I think seventy five percent of them were sold because before the mountain bike, you bought a road bike, asked the mechanic to flip the handlebars upside down, and put a fat seat on it, and it, and the air because air always leaves the tires. There's no material. There's no rubber that can hold air. The little the little things are like gophers. They're always escaping. So in a white in a week and a half, there'd be no air in your tire, or there'd be so little air that you'd get a flat. So it was like people got tired of skinny tire bikes and they left them in the attic and rode motorcycles or did something else. And the mountain bike made it did all that stuff for them. So 75% of the people that bought mountain bikes just wanted something with air in the tires and a fat seat and an upright position. And the rest of us were riding in the dirt. So let's go fast forward to stands because there's U URT, I mean, U um, Michelin. UST. US, Michelin UST. UST. Thank you very much, Brian. Michelin UST brought tubeless to the, to the world, but they brought it without sealant. And it wasn't until sealant came out that it became real. So I'm going to give it to stands for putting the whole thing together, just like Hayes. And that, 
transform the world. I mean, I still have that blue tube that I put on pink bike 66 times. And it still hasn't been used in what, seven years or eight years? It's yeah. just, you can ride your bike anywhere. You could carry maybe one tube. It just transformed it. it at one yeah, time, good. when I when I put on, when I, when I, I led rides, I had to bring five tubes to get the yeah. crew out of the, out of the woods. I remember, I remember bringing a lot of tubes on some, on bigger rides. I also remember, I remember going on road trips. Actually, this is a good question for you, RC. I remember going on road trips and bringing three spare square taper bottom brackets <laughs> because for sure you were going to break one, at least one. And maybe somebody else is going to break one. Like every second or third ride, it felt like somebody broke a square taper bottom bracket. Who can I thank for, for, you know, cranks with spindles? Well, there's, there's one person you can crank and I've got to think is Roger Durham. Okay. The I don't first, want to crank Roger Durham. No, no, no. You were thinking about the, the prototype, uh, one inch diameter tubular crank that where the axle was, was attached to one side and the, and the crank arm slid on the other side, exactly how Shimano is. And the man's name is Roger Durham and he lived in near Pasadena and he was this weird guy that weird inventor but he sold those cranks they're called bullseye and he sold those cranks and so bullseye cranks became the prototype for what we all use today and shimano gets the shout out for making the standards to make it work when they switched to their uh, uh hollow tubular tubular bottom bracket and i don't remember what they called it but it it was Shimano was the one that, that made the standard and changed the world, but it was Roger Durham that did the prototype and proved it. Yeah, it's one of those designs that when you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's how it should have been this whole time. But until then, you just think, oh, yeah, square taper. And then we get ISIS in between. Like, ISIS was supposedly better, but still not amazing. But then, yeah, when I remember when Shimano came out, I'd seen Bullseye before, but not in real life. But then when Shimano's came out, I was like, oh, yeah, that's what everybody needs immediately. Well, just take a look at the E Wings crank. And that's what mm -hmm. Roger Durham made out of chrome molly. It was spectacularly simple. And like you said, you slide it in, everything fits. So yeah, Brian, that, that's I, that's not even on my list. And it's like, mm -hmm. oops, <laughs> talk yeah, about a game changer. A, such a game changer. And the, I'm looking at these now. These are gorgeous cranks. I know. I want you, some bullseye cranks now. They look really good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> They're so cool looking. Like the, the <laughs> silver ones with the, yeah, it looks the like logo the, is cool. The company is still doing some stuff just for BMX. Is that the same company? Yep, same company. He also he also tried to get the world to change to oval cranks, but his I mean oval chain rings, but his oval chain rings were like these giant monstrosities. And he was he was one of those little men with legs the size of tree trunks, and he was a massive climber on a road bike, and that's what he thought was the best thing and was gonna change the world, but it didn't. All right, we should move on to probably we should go back to that uh, height right uh, comment there, RC, because that's that's one the dropper post has had a few kind of false starts over the years. What what year was the the height right? The height right was was in the eighties. Josh mm -hmm. Angel, I think Josh Angel and uh, Joe Breeze collaborated on that, 
And so basically in, in a perfect world, which it wasn't, your seat post would fit the frame absolutely right. And it would slide up and down with just the right amount of grease in it. And your, your little aim, your little height, right spring and stuff had spacers in it. And if you got the spacers and the, and the tension just right, it would actually keep the seat straight when you, when you released it and it went up. So basically the idea is everybody had adjustable uh, seat um, uh, quick release seat post clamps because basically if you wanted to go downhill, you had to do it by hand. And if you wanted to steal a seat, it made it an easy deal. But the, it, when it worked right, it was just like today's seat post. It would, it would go up, it would keep the seat straight, it would put it back in your position, and you had like one and a half inches of serious dropper post action. And everybody had them. It, it looked cool, but they only worked on bicycles that were that had that seat post, seat tube. I mean, seat post, seat tube interface, just perfect. Mm -hmm. And it was it was awesome, and it was light. I mean, what you know, ten ounces or or five ounces is all it weighed. Today, it might be a, even a good idea to, to revisit it. Put it on gravel bikes. Uh, yeah. But then uh, the gravity <laughs> dropper fiber height right. Let's give a shout Leap out spring to, height right. I'm let's give it. a shout out to gravity dropper. What it took, it took what, 15 years or something like that for somebody to come up with a better idea. But yeah. yeah they're like 2000, 2002, 2003, somewhere around there. Yeah. Like, is that, yeah. that's when I first saw one of those. Yeah. That's so, just very mechanical and pretty solid. Oh no, it was the worst. It was like a one inch tube with four or five holes drilled in it and a yeah, stick. It was very DIY. Well, yeah. <laughs> a spring yeah, yeah, but stick. like it, it was <laughs> mechanical as in there was like, you could rebuild it and like it worked. It did yeah. what it, like it was rough, but it did the it did the trick. You know, obviously now it's I wouldn't run a gravity dropper, but at the time, like oh, I understand that, and that's cool. It makes sense. Okay, for the, I can't remember the, the 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 man's name, but he was pretty young when when he came out with a gravity dropper. I think the the guy was I would consider him a kid. I think twenty eight years old or something like that. But it was just cable operated. And it, its reliability outlasted, I mean, it exceeded the reliability of every dropper post until what? The Fox? Fox came out with one. The Fox transfer, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would say there's the dark years of 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 of, of, uh, of uh, dropper posts went from gravity, mm -hmm. from the gravity dropper to Fox. <laughs> and that was what, eight years? Yeah. So what you Kaz, what year did you say? You said 2002-ish, 2003? Yeah, I think 2002-ish is the gravity dropper. And then I didn't, because I was away from, from mountain biking from, I don't think I saw one before that. And then I left mountain biking when I finished high school and went to university and couldn't afford one. Yeah. It and really wasn't but, until like 06, 07 yeah. is when like droppers kind of started their, their like official return and acceptance. Because I think KS came out with a pretty affordable one in like 2006, I think. When I started riding again in 08, a whole bunch of people had dropper posts and I was like, oh shit, look at this. Like, Yeah. Yeah, it's right around there because th the KS I had, I had it on my specialized demo because you should put dropper posts on downhill bikes. And I had the one that had the seat, it had the lever under the seat so I could just like reach under my seat and put it down. And that way I didn't have to play with running the remote or anything. But that's such a good setup though. Okay, it was pretty good. That, I like yeah. it. So there's, there's a, I, you know, I'm getting old, so I'm a little foggy on those, on those memory things, but there's two, there's, there's a, the, 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 the hydraulic, post came from crank brothers i believe and the then crank when brothers it, do the first hydraulic post yeah, that's the, the one with the lever the, the crank brothers well. wait a second it wasn't the chronologue it was the joplin 
It was named after a trail. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. had it had the little uh, weenie that you grabbed underneath the seat to operate it. It didn't have a remote lever. You just reached under there, grabbed the lever, and and pulled the seat, and and uh, and the seat would re- would release. Yeah, and that was around the same time. It's like oh eight. I know that I know that um, people love to love to talk smack on reverbs, and they've had a lot of problems. But I I had so many issues with. I think I had a KS before before the reverb and and I went through three or four posts and was just struggling all the time with reliability and then I got a reverb and in yeah I think 2011 and it just it, I could go half a year without having to think about my dropper, dropper post and I remember that being a, a revelation for me and I don't know if my experience was unique because no yeah, yours wasn't, like, wasn't unique chaos definitely had issues in those early days like the cartridges yeah. or the internals just wouldn't mm-hmm. you had to send them back to, it was like one guy in california i remember you sent it to him and he would rebuild it and send <laughs> it back to you you're like yeah i'm back in action <laughs> but yeah but then there was the thompson dropper post remember that well super expensive and, and everyone's like whoa and that was kind of before the fox transfer post carried on the torch of like reliability well there as long as you didn't pick your reverb set your bike up by the saddle which you got to mm-hmm. remember you know Carrying your bike, you know, for some reason, everybody thought carrying your bike was really macho. You know, remember all the magazine pictures for so many years when pictures of actually action, action shots looked so lame that they showed every advertisement of somebody carrying their bicycle up, you know, Mount Blanc or something like that. But <laughs> yeah, in Europe, back, you have to carry it over your shoulders. Yeah, <laughs> and you have to look like you're hurting. And then that was a perfect, you know, oh, look, he's really mountain biking. But, you know, excuse me, I think the free riders actually changed that and said, look, if you're going to take a picture, have them riding a bike and doing something cool. But I think that as long as you didn't do that and bleed air into it, the reverbs were quite reliable. But once you got air in the system, you were screwed. I mean, it was a technically difficult thing. I used to call the KS LEV the least evolved version because I had so many problems (laughs) with them. And I was testing bikes at the time, like Every week I'd have a different bike and every week they'd come with a cheap LEV seat post on it. And I'm like, oh, again, I've got a, I've got a, it's just a, a guaranteed fail for about two years. Yeah. It's so nice right now that most of them work most of the time. Like they're not perfect, mm-hmm. but overall it's rare that I really have to like swear at a dropper post. I like it. And there's so many options now and tons of drop and we're getting pretty it, good spot. I, again, it was a little bit like, uh, like your bottom bracket situations where, you know, it was just a numbers game, at least every third or fourth ride was going to get ruined by your dropper post. <laughs> and now, mm-hmm. I'm knock on wood, but I haven't had a ride ruined by a dropper post in a very long time. <laughs> Pretty rare. Just, it's good. Let's let's finish a, a four-hour epic with, with a seat with post that you're down your low. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. So let's give Fox a shout out for saying, you know, for just looking at it and saying, okay, guys, I don't care how long it takes for us to develop this, but when we sell this post, it's not going to give anybody a problem. And and I think mm-hmm. if you look at the front suspension and rear suspension breakpoint, Fox owns both of them. Because remember when RockShocks hydraulics were just, I mean, literally everything leaked, nothing really worked that well. And everything else had like some sort of rubber band or, or uh, marshmallow that was made out of some weird material. And it was Fox that said, hey, I don't care if people race this thing. Let's just make a fork that works. So you remember those blue-gray, ugly Fox 
suspension forks that came out. I forgot what they called them, but the very first model that they have was a little heavier than RockShocks, had a little bit more travel, and you could ride them for like a year and they wouldn't leak, they worked. And so I think it was Fox that, that slapped everybody in the face and said, hey, look, not everybody has a race van waiting in the wings somewhere when you come back to the pits to fix your suspension every time you ride it. Why don't we make one that works and then build a race fork later, you know? And so I think Fox gets the shout out for the for the trail fork and for the and for the first operational dropper with hydraulics and air in it. I feel like if we're doing the suspension shout outs, we can't not talk about Marzoki. You mean the 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 banner of the free ride movement? <laughs> Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in DC. <laughs> yeah, can't overlook that. <laughs> okay, yeah. let's let's just start with Bender and the nine foot long monster fork. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean that. I think much... we could skip that whole era. <laughs> yeah. I just remember <laughs> the first coil fork I rode from Marzoki. I do remember being like, "Oh, oh, okay." So we got cut. Droppers are covered. We got brakes covered. We got what else? Do we Oh, should we Head should stand. we do the death of the front derailleur? Yeah, not yet. Not yet. That's a big one. There's another not one. Yet. There's another secret Ooh. one in there that doesn't really get the credit, and it's aluminum frames. So hmm. you wouldn't think that that would be a big change, but everybody that was using that was well, let's just go to the to the gray hair, gray metal era. Everybody had steel hardtails, and if you and the industry is really funny about making things the same way with just a different material. Uh, we'll get back to tires on that one, but right now, because <laughs> tires are the same way. They make them the same way. Three pieces of fabric folded over, the bunch of rubber glued on under heat, and that's that's it. That's all, that's what we get. But let's go back to, to metal. When we made frames out of metal, if you went from steel to titanium, you got the same pretty much look, the same diameter tubes pretty much. Everything works. It's a great thing, but it doesn't go anywhere. So when aluminum came out, it set the, it set the entire stage for suspension to come later. Because until you had aluminum, you couldn't make all those little pivots and those, those extra little rockers and stuff light enough to make a bicycle that, that could be pedaled around on the trail without weighing a thousand pounds, even titanium. If you make a suspension bike out of titanium, it's gonna be cross country suspension, you know, like 120 millimeter suspension bike that weighs 33 pounds. If you do it out of steel, it's gonna be 35. But if you made it out of aluminum, the penalty for putting in the extra strength and the extra weight and the little pivots and all that rocker wasn't so huge. And it took a while for for um, aluminum manufacturers to figure out how thick and how to butt it and do all that stuff. But when it happened, Easton rod tubing. It it yeah, literally when Easton came out and made it light, it actually paved the way for the later uh, emergence of of rideable suspension. And I think that was one of the most important developments. So is. I'm showing my ignorance here, but is it harder to hydroform steel than it is to hydroform aluminum? Yes and no. If the steel is thin and it's what they call killed, it's soft enough, it hydroforms extremely well, stretches around corners and stuff. Aluminum starts to harden as you stretch it, so you can. But aluminum is much more formable, like you said. You can hydroform it, you can make it. It's, it's just a wonderful material. 
but it we had to figure out how to make it not crack and age in in such a short time. We had to figure out what the aerospace industry did. How long can you flex aluminum before it breaks? And can we make that period long enough so people forget about our company and don't sue us when that happens? So we <laughs> we had to figure out how to make aluminum frames last a million cycles, which is longer than anybody would ride a bike. And once that happened, it we moved forward and that paved the way for what we ride today, really. I never thought about the design implications of, of aluminum frames. So that's pretty, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I think before we talk about the death of the front derailleur, we probably need to talk about clutch rear derailleurs. And I think, yeah, I think RC, you were actually, you covered the 2011 XTR group at some point. Yeah, I did. That probably was... 2011. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at old downhill films, you can see that the chain, or cross-country racing films, you can see that the chain just goes all over the place. And most chain derailments don't happen at the top. They happen from the bottom because the front sprockets are generally, until later, generally larger than the rear sprockets. So any wiggling can get the chain to move off the bottom of the, of the sprocket quite well. When the sprockets are the same size and diameter, the, they feed right at the, at the top of, the, of the, the apex of that circle. And, and they're not affected by the wiggling. But once you get one sprocket larger than the other, they are. And that's how mountain bikes were. So when Shimano put a clutch, a one-way clutch on the on the uh, chain take-up part of the derailleur, it kept the chain tension consistent at the bottom, and that was a miracle. When the difference between riding one with the, with the clutch on and the clutch off in rough terrain is it, it literally almost stopped derailments a hundred percent. But the second part of that equation was just about the time that the clutch derailleur came out, people started running smaller sprockets on the front and larger ones on the rear. And that brought the chain when during most of our riding pretty close to the center of the sprocket. And those two things pretty much eliminated uh, chain, uh, chain derailments forever. And at the beginning of the sport, chain derailments were a guarantee. At the bottom of every hill when you were shifting, especially when um, Shimano, <laughs> Shimano decided shifters? to make <laughs> no diff different when they when they, when they met with their, their uh, unusual shaped sprock uh, sprockets, that guaranteed it. At the bottom of every hill at every race, people were pushing and putting their chains on every lap. It was pretty funny. So those two, the clutch rear derailleur and the and later on the uh, one by drivetrain changed the the derailment forever it just solved it and that's the thing with the with that clutch is the clutch really was a critical component of letting us then have these wide range wide range drivetrains that let us kill the front derailleur yes i'd agree yeah. that was the first step the silence and step. The narrow wide <laughs> chain rings yeah yeah how exactly. much I mean, that was like, another thing they're quiet like I remember the first time with a clutch derailleur, you realized how loud mountain biking had been up until that point. And then you put a clutch derailleur <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's way better. <laughs> <laughs> totally. How how much do you think narrow wide con contributes to that? I don't actually I don't actually know the answer to that. Narrow wide is, is a huge con con contributor because of the same thing I was explaining. What what narrow wide does is it it if you look at the teeth, they're ball shaped at the top. So what they do is they they guide the they hold the chain on they allow the chain to move but they also because of that that little 
extra extra little bump in there, it holds it holds the chain while it, while it engages into the next into the next tooth. It kind of like holds it a little bit longer. And I think narrow wide was and it still is. I mean, I'm running a Shimano. I've been running a Shimano uh, XT very successfully. I've had very few chain derailments on it. But when I go to the narrow wide, that's the it's smoother, it's quieter, it's it's just a. Uh, and I don't derail on it on the uh, the narrow wide when I'm on my SRAM transmissions. I, I just it's not even in my mind. So I think it was a a major improvement. I don't think SRAM invented it. I think they bought it, but they recognized that this was a component. And I believe some of SRAM's uh, cogs in the rear are the same way. So basically, we have yeah, a, on their I don't think so. on their pulley. They have a pulley wheel that's narrow. Yeah, yeah pulley wheel. Lower sorry, pulley wheel. I think. Yeah. yeah, and it just allows it. Basically, you've got this one, this one that holds it, and this one that's a little bit narrower, so it gives it a little bit more time to feed in at odd angles. I mean, we we couldn't solve the one by one and have twelve cogs back there with a reasonable space between them if we didn't have a way to keep to feed the chain into the sprocket at an unusually large angle and that that little combination of a wide range rear and, and a single and, a, and one chain ring in the front i think like you said that that brought the next phase of development back into the industry because we didn't have to worry about the front derailleur we didn't have to make room for it. And suddenly we didn't have to design rear suspension to go like eight inches down below the bike or eight inches above it to miss this stupid little mechanism that we probably shouldn't have had in the first place. But <laughs> the laugh the laugh. I'll be eternally grateful. I'll be eternally grateful to SRAM for for the wide range one by that, that we enjoy today. The, here's a joke. I call it the, the, the Shimano cave. Um, people believed for some reason that, you know how how long it takes for the for bicycle companies to actually accept the fact of, that there's has been change it was mm -hmm. what four years where people still designed that offset the seat the seat post and put a gigantic bump in there and then turned everything around to have this like cave in there for this waiting is like a little nest that the industry built for shimano to to bring back the front derailleur and to the, to this little nest in the side of the frame. And it's like the, the front pivot, the most important pivot on a suspension bike is the front swinging arm pivot was like reduced to like an inch and a quarter, you know, what, what 35 millimeter width to make room for Shimano's hopeful return of the front One derailleur. Day. It's like, guys, just kill that thing. You know, <laughs> I remember, I remember being in discussions of like, are we, is this bike going to be front derailleur compatible? Oh no, the like these customers will be really upset if we can't have don't have the option to spec a front derailleur, like all this stuff. And it was just like the eye rolling in the room is like, <laughs> come on, please, please, let's just kill it. Yeah, well, it's kind of the meat and potatoes are the big things that have changed bikes for the uh, better in the last. Yeah, I think you know, we could talk about the wheel wars, but I think that's probably its own its own entire podcast. Yeah. Um I've well, got one more, but it's a really small one. No, there's, so, there's one. RC, there's you've a, got some big there's ones. There's a big one in there. There's a big one, and Ooh. and it all it it's actually the the realization of 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 something. But I'm gonna I'm gonna pin this one on Dave Weagle. Now, Dave has been a very very flamboyant character in the whole thing, but Dave was the one that brought 
the the idea of anti squat from the motorcycle and the car industry basically founded in a in a motorcycle book a, a, a suspension guy that is just a, a brilliant man who understands the whole concept of how power and braking transfers through a vehicle but i'm going to go back before dave wego because there was another car racer uh bob gervin who was uh, of who the built, aforementioned flex stem? Yes, the flex stem. But Bob Gervin did the, did the first rear suspension bike that you could actually buy and didn't break. There's still Gervin's being ridden around, and Bob was was one of the guys that missed the boat on front suspension. So I'm not going to give him I'm not going to give him a handshake for inventing the suspension bike and making it popular because he only made rear suspension, and it seems so dumb to me, you know. Even though I cut my teeth, I mean, I made my most money as a bike builder doing a rear suspension bike. But back to this, Bob Gervin knew about anti-squat and he actually patented the relationship of the front suspension pivot being right at the level of the chain tension, which creates just about the right amount of anti-squat. And he had a, a single pivot bike that worked really well. I copied it unknowingly. I found that place myself. And then he called me up and said he was going to sue my ass. And he realized how few bikes I was making and said, okay, Richard, you can use my patent and I won't say anything about it. But if you look at today's today's uh, suspension, that magic pivot point still exists today. And it was Bob Gervin that discovered it and patented it. And his bikes worked pretty darn good back then. But did he have, is that, you know, having that main pivot near the, near the, um, where your chainring was, was that like, um, you know, when you do the math problem wrong, but you accidentally get to the right answer or, or did, was his reasoning sound for getting there? His reasoning was absolutely sound because the power transfer, you have to use anti-squat on cars to keep them from dropping. You have to, you have to balance the, the chassis. And so he knew that and he actually worked it out for that reason. I met him and we had that discussion. So, but it was, it was uh, Dave Weagle who, who, set the, who set everybody on the right path. And, and up to that point, if you remember, there was a thousand different shocks that had all these special valves and stuff in it, this complicated blah, blah, blah. And, and Weagle said, hey, why don't we just do this with a geometry and let the shocks do whatever they want? So two things happened. One is Dave Weagle brought this the torch of Prometheus anti-squat to the world. He named it a horrible name that nobody could forget. And everybody that figured it out said, hey, we can do this a lot easier. And from that day on, I think the bicycle with a reasonable amount of suspension that pedaled well became, you know, became the, the norm. It, it, it literally leveled the playing field. So I'm going to say rear suspension was one of the greatest things that came to us, but it wasn't great until Dave Weagle told us about anti-squat and showed us that it could work. And after that, boom, now every bike pedals well, and we don't have to write that climbs like a goat and pedal like a cross country bike thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, that is a good one. I, uh, I think, yeah, I think I want to end this one on a small, a smaller product than maybe some of the things we've talked about but to me it seems like one of the most important things and that is the specialized SWAT system and the return of or of like on bike storage um, you know return of the water bottle that kind of thing we had some dark dark days of enormous hydro packs and you know that's where you kept your three extra uh isis bottom brackets and all that stuff 
and there was no room for anything in your frame because it was made of crazy hydroformed shapes. And yes, specialized putting a hole in the down tube to store your things and actually thinking tangibly about like real world practical thing, ways to make your ride better rather than, you know, nebulous you're this rear derailleur is 20 grams lighter. It's so much better now kind of stuff. It's like, to me, that's just, that's made a huge difference in my riding. And it's a reason to buy a bike for me. It's like, if it doesn't have storage or it doesn't have a good water bottle setup. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, it's a, a trans it's a transfer to a different type of riding as well. I mean, mm-hmm. when the mountain biking started out, it was an adventure sport. People wanted to see how far you could go or how high you could go. And, and so longer rides were a big deal, you know, but after, as, as everybody, as, as everybody started getting crushed for time, we've, we've divided our lives into like two hour blocks or one hour blocks. And so uh, the riding experience has shortened considerably. And then the, uh, the enduro bro thing was pretty big about right being in the right kit as well. So when Specialized invented their SWAT, the super wowery attack trousers, to hide your water bottles, you can wear your your racing jersey. It was so much more comfortable. And if you brought it, and it basically stored two hours worth of riding, you know. And so I think the two things happened: is one is the the storing everything on your bike is possible as long as you're only going to be out for X amount of time. Or you happen to live in Europe where there's always a village with an espresso machine and a sandwich at the top of every that's major peak. That's part of Europe. <laughs> that's part of Europe. In, in Colorado, that's not the case. So you may have to carry a little extra. But yes, I think the the modern rider now is is a is doing a shorter, much more intense type of riding. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. that that response was absolutely perfectly timed as specialized usually does those things (laughs) yeah yeah that that to me has made such a difference and even you know even for longer rides just getting it off the backpack and onto the bike is really nice yeah yeah it's almost like subtle changes but it has been a pretty big change in the last few years interesting to see what the next thing is coming up well it kind of to me is like are we stagnating now because in terms of design this is definitely a talk for another podcast like that now we're dealing with these sort of like smaller more practical things or yeah does that mean that does that mean that gearboxes are on the horizon it's <laughs> 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 a whole another another <laughs> podcast gearbox podcast coming up we've, we days. have tried we've tried to do gearbox podcasts a few times but the people that we want to come and talk to us about gearboxes have been reluctant to come on and talk to us about gearboxes so fair enough we'll keep working on it <laughs> yeah i guess that's a good ending is is, is yeah. there what's next? another is is there another big wow right around the corner that none of us are going to see because we are now the 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 mature riders in the sport you know and so we we probably would resist it i mean if something came that was a huge change that caused us to rethink how we ride and stuff would we accept it no i'm a trend jumper i'll i'll be on it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh, yeah, let's wrap that one there. And then I'm sure if we did miss something, everyone can let us know in the comments. Oh, speaking of comments and speaking of trends, we do have a comment gold to go to. This one comes from One Mind One Two Three, and this is in regards to the uh, the April Fools possibly joke about saying that Pivot is going to be producing next Grim Donut. And he says that marketing should have called it steeper head angle racing technology. So if you're bad or good with spelling, that's S H A R T steeper head angle racing technology. 
absolute missed opportunity there. So figure out Fair. that clever acronym. Fair. I blew it. I yeah. blew it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, RC. It's always good to have you on here. We'll get you back for some more story time because it's great talking with you. And yeah, I think we'll wrap up episode 56 here. As always, thanks for listening and we'll talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.